All right, we will get into those notes in just a, just a bit. Let me remind you of some things that are coming up this Wednesday. We have no midweek services at all because it's the day before Thanksgiving, but we'll resume those the following Wednesday. One week from today, uh, we will have four adult classes going on during this 11 o'clock hour. Today is the last day of this series. You've got questions. God has answers. And then next week, uh, I will be leading a class called Newcomer's Orientation. If you've never taken the Newcomer's Orientation, then I encourage you to attend that. As I say, this hour, starting next week, it goes for four Sundays. And it just gives you information about our church. It doesn't obligate you to anything, but just helps you make a decision as to whether this is where the Lord would have you serve and grow. You don't need to register for that. You just need to show up next week, and then we will go into adult classroom number two, out that back door and across the hallway, and we'll start at 11.15. So that's one of the four classes next week. The other one is, we call it Membership 101, and that's for people who have joined our church since the last membership class we had. Uh, If you're in that category, you should have received an invitation already to attend that class, and that'll meet in the Resource Center. Meeting in adult classroom number one next week will be our 18 to 25-year-olds. We call that our crossroads group, and Brother Bob Fight is going to be teaching them. And then everybody else, if you're not in Newcomer's Orientation, Membership 101, or Crossroads, then you're in here. And during those four weeks, we're going to have four of our guys uh, teaching, four different uh, guys. And the first week, next week, is going to be uh, Brother Matt Olmstead, and then uh, Brother Paul McKenzie, and then Troy Fisher, and then Dr. Combs. So in that order over the next four weeks. And then the week after that, we don't have our second hour because it's two days before Christmas. We're just going to have one worship service that day. Um, We're not going to have the Sunday school hour. So we won't, uh, I won't be meeting with you after today in this room until the first Sunday in, in January. Okay? All right. So there's that. And then there is the Newcomer's Brunch. Saturday, December the 1st, so just a couple of Saturdays away, uh, we will have our next brunch at our house, and as the name suggests, it's for newcomers, Uh, but sometimes there are old comers, people who have been here for a long time, who for whatever reason haven't been able to come to one of the scheduled brunches, and if you've never been to one, we would love to have you over at our house, and it's an informal time for us just to get to know you and you us. My wife makes a, a mean brunch, she makes a good brunch, so I'm trying to entice you with the food too. We do need to know who's coming for that. And so you can let the folks know at the information desk that you would like to attend that. They'll put your name on the list so Kim knows how much food to make for that. 10 a.m. at our house, Saturday, December the 1st. They'll give you an invitation at the desk with our address and phone number on it. The Ladies' Christmas Social, ladies, the annual Ladies' Christmas Social is Friday night, December the 7th. And uh, we'll have, uh, as we've had the last several years, uh, 24 round tables set up in here. That's the max that we can get in here. I think we get eight women around each one. And so, we, uh, and the gals always have just a, a marvelous time. Our guest speaker is going to be Tracy Veenstra. I think uh, Tracy spoke uh, for one of these for us a few years ago and did a, did a great job. So you guys will enjoy the fellowship. You'll enjoy the speaker as well. We do need to know who's coming for that. So, ladies, if you haven't already registered to attend that, they just need to uh, know who's coming so that you can be assigned to one of the those 24 tables. 
So you can do that at the kiosk that is in our resource center, out the back door again and across the hallway. And then last, just mark your calendars for the 16th of December. It's our annual adult Christmas fellowship. And for years we've had a white elephant gift exchange, but there are enough people now attending that that it's hard to logistically get that done. So we're not doing that this year. So the planners are doing something else. And all they're willing to tell me is, that you will have a blast. They're, they're hiding it from me, which scares me. I'm afraid I'm going to be, I'm afraid I'm going to be the brunt of whatever blast we have. Uh, so I'm taking their word for it. You should take their word for it and uh, show up. But we will have a great time of fellowship together that night on the uh, 16th from six to eight. All right. Today is the last week of you've got questions and God has answers, and we're going to answer the question: Isn't the church a man-made institution? At the outset, let me ask you a question. Don't answer it out loud. Just answer it to yourself. But what is the pillar and foundation of the truth? What is the pillar and foundation of the truth? I'll come back to that when we get to the end of our, our time together. But now, for now, just ask yourself and answer to yourself that question. What is the pillar and foundation of the, of the truth? On page one, in answering this question, isn't the church a man-made institution? I say the role of the church in one's spiritual life is a matter of considerable discussion and misunderstanding. One extreme sees the church as necessary for salvation. For example, Pope Boniface VIII wrote in 1302, Outside the church, there is no salvation. Now, lest you think that that's just something in the past from, you know, nearly 700, over 700 years ago. More recently, the Roman Catholic Church has sought to clarify this in the 1992 Catechism of the Catholic Church, which restated it this way. How are we to understand this affirmation often repeated by the church fathers? Reformulated positively, it means that all salvation comes from Christ the head through the church, which is his body. Explaining the last part of that statement, that salvation comes through the church, the leading Catholic apologetics organizations called Catholic Answers says this, since the sacraments are the ordinary means through which Christ offers the grace necessary for salvation and the Catholic church that Christ established is the ordinary minister of those sacraments, it is appropriate to state that salvation comes through the church. And I say here in layman's terms, this means that since, according to Roman Catholicism, mass and other ordinances are required for forgiveness of sins, and since one can only receive those through the Catholic Church administered by a priest of the church, then unless one dies in the good graces of that church, he will not go to heaven. So that's the belief of Roman Catholicism, that outside the sacraments of the church, you don't go to heaven. And the only people who can administer those sacraments are those authorized by the church to do so. So therefore, your salvation is inextricably tied then to the church. So that's one extreme. On the other hand, middle of that page, in part is a reaction to the extreme that sees the church as the vehicle through which salvation is achieved. Many see no value or necessity for the church at all. For instance, on the back cover of his book, Exit Interviews, William Hendricks estimates that, quote, 53,000 people leave churches every week and never come back. Hendricks' own comments regarding this trend are revealing. 
He says that what he calls backdoor believers have found have become quite resourceful at finding ways to meet God apart from a local church. And that those leaving the church behind have often found, quote, a better way. He notes that, quote, often, quite often they describe themselves as moving closer to God, but further away from the church. What's his message to these, what he calls dropouts? I don't blame you for walking out. So that's yet a another extreme. So this question, isn't the church a man-made institution? You've got a couple of extremes. On the one hand, you have to have the church in order to have salvation. On the other hand, uh, you can take or leave the church. And William Hendricks is voicing something that a lot of people voice. They say things like, I, I'm spiritual but not religious. You ever heard people say that? I'm spiritual but not religious. And so you know, I, I have my relationship with God, but then that whole church thing, that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother matter. I love Jesus, but I don't really care for the church. I don't believe in organized religion. And underlying all of this is something that is a very uh, uniquely American. And that is this idea that uh, your relationship with God is something unmediated. That it's just you and Jesus. There's no mediation. There's nobody else that uh, needs to be involved in your ongoing relationship with, with the Lord. So you think about that for a bit. I mean, think about the Bible saying things like in Ephesians chapter 4, it was he, Christ, who gave some to be and then lists these gifts that God, Christ gave to his church, apostles and evangelists. And he, and he goes on to say pastors and teachers, that Christ gave pastors and teachers as something for the church. Well, if Christ gave that, then it would seem that that would be something necessary for you in your spiritual walk. But this approach that says it's just me and Jesus has a completely unmediated approach. I don't need a pastor. I don't need teachers. I don't need all of all of that stuff and the trappings that go with what they call organized religion. Bottom of page one, an article on the church stated that, quote, the church cannot possibly have anything to do with a physical organization. The same article states the words called out ones, the Greek word ekklesia, translated church in your New Testament, cannot possibly have anything at all to do with the physical organization or assembling of that which we today call a church. The spiritual experience of effectual calling creates in and of itself the ecclesia of Christ. And since that effectual calling is totally spiritual, it follows that the thing created by that calling, the church, the ecclesia, must also be spiritual and not physical, says one, I'll just give away the farm here, says one confused person. <laughs> okay, I'll hope to clarify some of the confusion as we, as we move on, but... Why has the concept of the local church met with such resistance? Well, as I said, you've got these American individualism that contributes to that. It's just me. I'm on my own. Me and Jesus. Why do I need anybody else or any of this other stuff? And uh, Robert Bella, in his book called Habits of the Heart, examined American society to find out what makes it tick. He was particularly interested in American belief systems, and he made some startling discoveries. One of the people he interviewed had this to say, I believe in God. 
I can't remember the last time I went to church, but my faith has carried me a long way. He felt that her words characterized the attitudes of many people in America. Surveys in America show that 80% of Americans believe in God, but when you look carefully into the God, small g, in whom they believe, you find the attitude above. Many Americans claim to believe in God, but in actual fact, they're really listening to a little voice inside themselves. Charles Colson commented on this. When the not-so-still or small voice of the self becomes the highest authority, religious belief undergoes a change so dramatic that it no longer involves commitment to any authority beyond oneself. The church is no longer regarded as a repository of truth, nor as a source of moral authority, but merely as a place to go for spiritual strokes. So you got that. You got lots of people who believe that way. We are individualistic Americans, rugged individualism. I make my own way. And you can see how that can easily then be uh, imported into people's views of the of the church. So you've got those cultural factors. But the middle of page two, there are some religious reasons for this lack of emphasis on the central role of the local church. And we're going to examine some of these. Now, as we go through these next several pages, there's a bunch of stuff here. And so I'll uh, try to plow through it as efficiently as I can, and hopefully it'll all be very clear. But one of the uh, religious reasons that people still don't understand the importance of the church and appreciate the importance of the local church is lack of, lack of individual mission. That is, what I'm saying there is this, that you've got a lot of Christians who believe that the only thing that matters is that I'm going to heaven. And once that question is answered, where are you going to spend eternity, nothing else matters. So when is the question, where are you going to spend eternity, when is that answered? Well, that's answered at the moment you come to Christ, right? And if you believe, as the Bible teaches, in something called eternal security, that is, once you are a child of God, you remain a child of God forever. If that's the case, then I know I'm going to heaven, and the fact that I'm going to heaven is not going to change. Therefore, what's all the fuss about? If your view is the only thing that matters is whether or not you're going to heaven, we already know the answer to that if you've come to Christ. So what else matters at this point? That's what I mean by lack of individual mission. Now it's just biding my time until I get to heaven. For people like this, their lives are one big Bill Knapps. Now Bill Knapps is out of business now. But some of you remember Bill Knapps. Bill Knapps was a place where it was known for older folks to frequent. There was a joke that uh, there were so many old folks that attended um, Bill Knapps that Bill Knapps came to be known as God's waiting room. (laughs) But my wife and I used to take our girls there. And we were by far the youngest people every time we we went in there at that time. We liked it because it was cheap and and it was good food, at least for our standards. But for people who believe this, it's all that matters is whether I'm going to heaven and it's just you know God's waiting room. The rest of my life is just waiting. The rest of my life is just waiting until I die or Jesus returns. That's what I mean by lack of individual mission then. 
But here you've got this quote at the bottom of page two from Francis Schaeffer. Excuse me. We must realize that while the new birth is necessary as the beginning, it is only a beginning. We must not think that because we have accepted Christ as Savior and therefore are Christians, this is all there is in the Christian life. In one way, physical birth is the most important part in our physical lives because we're not alive in the external world until we've been born. But in another way, it's the least important of all the aspects of our life because it's only the beginning and then it's past. After we're born, the important thing is the living of our lives and all their relationships, possibilities, and capabilities. It's exactly the same with the new birth. In one way, the new birth is the most important thing in our spiritual lives because we're not Christians until we have come this way. In another way, however, after one has become a Christian, it must be minimized in that we should not always have our minds only on our new birth. The important thing after being born spiritually is to live. There is new birth and then there is the Christian life to be lived. This is the area of sanctification from the time of the new birth through this present life until Jesus comes or until we die. The true Christian life, true spirituality, does not mean just that we have been born again. It must begin there, but it means much more than that. It does not mean only that we're going to be in heaven. It does mean that, but it's more than that. The true Christian life, true spirituality in the present life, means more than being justified and knowing that I'm going to heaven. All right. So I assume you'll you buy into that. But if you don't, then you're going to have this problem. But the fact that you're sitting here on a Sunday, I'll take it you buy into that. That there's more to it than just the time that I came to Christ. So for some people, there's lack of individual mission. What am I here for? The, the big question's already been answered. I'm just waiting my time. But then there's also for some lack of corporate mission. That is, even if they believe that there is mission to be done for Christ by us as Christian individuals, these are people, as we're going to see, who don't believe that there's necessarily any mission for us to do together. So there is individual mission, but it's just that, it's individual. It's not collective. So, page three, historically, a number of objections have been advanced against the notion of corporate, collective mission together. In the years following the Protestant Reformation, several factors contributed to a lack of missionary zeal on the part of the church. For instance, some taught that the Great Commission had been fulfilled by the apostles and was not, therefore, the responsibility of the church. Other reasons, both theological and practical, contributed to that mindset. The result was that very little Protestant missionary activity took place over 200 years. More recently, in the last century, evangelicalism has been affected by a failure to recognize the corporate dimension of mission. While many in our day fail to see a mission for the individual Christian, as I've said, others believe that our purpose is only individual. That is, They see that each believer is to be engaged in mission for the Lord. Such mission has no connection with the corporate body. Note the words of C.I. Schofield. Some of you maybe owned a Schofield reference Bible at one time. That was the most popular study Bible in the world. C.I. Schofield was a scholar, and he wrote those notes for the Schofield reference Bible. So we're going to quote him, and we're going to quote Lewis Sperry Schaefer, uh, the founder of Dallas Theological Seminary. 
Here's what Schofield said. The visible church, as such, is charged with no mission. The commission to evangelize the world is personal, not corporate. So far as the scripture goes, the work of evangelization was done by individuals called directly by the work, by the Spirit to that work. So that's Schofield saying that. Now, Schofield was an associate of Schaefer. And here's what Schaefer said. No responsibility or service is imposed on the church per se. Service, like the gifts of the Spirit by whom service is wrought, is individual. It could not be otherwise. The common phrase, the church's task, is without biblical foundation. It's only when individuals sense their personal responsibility and claim personal divine enablement that Christian work is done. And I say at the top of page four, the influence of these men on American evangelicalism is enormous. Couple that with the individualism of our secular culture, the result has been a lone ranger mentality that sees the church as unnecessary. One of the things that struck me before I even knew that Schofield had said that, that Schaefer believed that, I had observed something years ago about para-church organizations. You all know what I mean when I say para-church Para means beside, so beside the church. These are organizations that are not churches. They're Christian organizations. They do very often good Christian work, but they're not churches. They're not under the authority of churches. They do their own thing. So they're individuals who kind of entrepreneurially started their own thing for, for mission. And what I observed was that there were a ton of these things. They just go by all kinds of names. There still are to this day. And that so many of them were attached to Dallas Seminary. That the guys that were coming out of Dallas, that many of them, obviously not all, many of them became pastors, I'm, th- I'm glad to say. But many of them started stuff. that, like Everybody that came out needed to start something. Everybody needed to start a, you know, a parachurch thing. And you can see the seeds of that here. Or the roots of that. Because they had been taught... That there is mission, but it's individual mission. It's not church mission. And so you go and start your organization. We've got these all over the place. Again, many times they do very good work. It would be much better, I think, as we will see, if this was church work rather than para-church work. So you've got lack of individual mission uh, on the part of some people. You've got lack of corporate mission on the part of others. They believe that there is mission, but it's only carried out by individuals, not by the the body. And then you've got, on page four, lack of biblical mission. What do we mean by that? Most evangelicals place great emphasis on the need to fulfill the Great Commission as given by Jesus in Matthew 28. Before he ascended back to the Father, he left his final instruction, saying, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Okay, that's all good. And many of us evangelicals, when we say evangelicals, that means people who believe the gospel, just roughly and that conversion to Christ is required, and so evangelism is required. That's roughly what an evangelical is. And so in that sense, I, we would be evangelicals. But uh, 
say here, however, many understand the commission to be limited to preaching the gospel or limited to evangelizing the lost. Now, of course, Jesus' mandate cannot be obeyed apart from that. But Christ's commission includes more. In the words of one commentator, notice this, middle of page four, making disciples, baptizing and teaching people to observe Christ's commandments cannot be fulfilled apart from the visible local church. In other words, evangelism is not the Great Commission, but only a part of it. Perhaps better put, the Great Commission is the building of the church, not merely, but certainly including, encouraging individual professions of faith. So if you believe that the Great Commission is simply evangelism, getting people to trust Christ, that's indispensable to the Great Commission. But it can't be only that because Jesus said, make disciples, and then he then described how you make those disciples, baptizing and teaching. Baptizing them and teaching them to observe everything that I have commanded you. So it is most definitely not enough to simply equate the Great Commission with giving the gospel. Middle of page four, when fulfillment of the Great Commission is equated with conversion, then important aspects of Jesus' command are left undone. Baptism and the process of discipleship are then considered optional. All right, I keep stopping. I started to say sorry, but I'm not really that sorry. Um, it's just the way I roll. But, you know, important aspects of the Great Commission are left undone, and discipleship, baptism and discipleship then are considered optional. And that seems just so weird, probably to most of yours, I hope, to most of your ears, to, to go, really, there are people who think those things are optional? That getting baptized is optional? That being discipled is optional? Yeah, it's optional. If you are taking the evangelism for the faint-hearted class that uh, I've been going through on Wednesday nights, uh, I made mention of a chart in the back of a book called Balancing the Christian Life. And Balancing the Christian Life was written by Charles Ryrie, also of Dallas uh, Seminary fame. By the way, Dallas Seminary's put out a lot of good people, a lot of very good people. So, But they messed this up. And one of the results of that was this chart in the back of this book where Ryrie shows that the way the Christian life goes is you come to conversion, and then there's this period of time where you may or may not be a follower of Jesus. You belong to Jesus, but you might not be a follower of Jesus, which is what disciple means, by the way, a follower. But then he shows on the chart that sometime later, there may be this crisis event, that's what he calls it, where an act of dedication occurs, and now you become a disciple. And you start to grow in your in your faith. But and and for by the way, for a lot of people, that's actually the way things went for them. They came to Christ and then they didn't grow a whole lot, and then you know something happened in their life and then they started to grow. So I'm not saying that doesn't happen. What I am saying is, and here's the important part, that gap between when you were first saved and becoming a disciple, that whole thing, that is not optional. Discipleship is not optional. And in the Ryrie approach, in the, in the Dallas approach, in the approach that many evangelicals have, there's being a believer and then there's being a disciple, and you can be one without the, the other. There's a lot of problems with that, one of which is this. Uh, in the New Testament, 
The word disciple is used over and over again, especially in the book of Acts, to be a synonym for a believer. Believer and disciple are the same people. So it's not believer, disciple as a separate uh, separate category. Some people are believers and some people are also disciples. But rather they're the same people and the Bible assumes that believers will be disciples, followers of Christ. So middle of that paragraph, this truncated version of the Great Commission sees the church as helpful but not essential to the biblical mission. Michael Griffiths says, Christ brings us into the membership of new communities of light and love, making us fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. Perhaps sometimes in the West, we've lost sight of the importance of these basic Christian communities, and we think that churches are merely incidental organizations within institutionalized Christianity. We think that the gospel tells how an individual may be saved, but the letter to the Ephesians declares that both individual salvation and the corporate community are essential parts of the gospel. The churches are not merely incidental means of grace to help individuals to be saved. So what is then the role of the local church in Christ's mission? Having reviewed a number of obstacles to a proper understanding, let's examine the biblical teaching of something called the primacy of the local church. Or, top of page 5, the centrality of the local church. Now when I say the local church, Remember I had that quote on the very first page and I said, that's a quote from a confused individual and who said that the ecclesia cannot possibly have anything to do with the physical organization and all of that. So here's his confusion. Uh, the word ecclesia in your New Testament is uh, used 109 times in your New Testament. And... It's used in a couple of ways. Actually, it's used in three ways. A couple of times, it is used as just a general term, not even with spiritual significance, just referring to a gathering of people. It's used that way in Acts chapter 19, where the Bible tells us that a riot broke out and a mob gathered because of what Paul was teaching in the city of Ephesus. And that that mob, that assembly, was called an ecclesia. So that's just used to refer to an, an assembly. But the overwhelming majority of the time, it is used to refer to the uh, assembly, the group of God's people. And the overwhelming majority of the times that it's used of that, it's used of God's people gathered in locales, in particular places, versus... God's people who are not located in one place, but are all over the world. Every now and then the Bible uses it that way. That's known as the universal church. It's referring, and the Bible uses it this way, in Ephesians chapter 2, for example, to refer to all of God's people, no matter where they're located, no matter when they lived. And they are part of the universal body of Christ, that belong to him. Now that's what the guy on, that I quoted on page one is talking about. The ecclesia is the spiritual reality, and it's these people. It's formed by people coming to Christ, and it's all of these people worldwide. And they don't, they'll never meet each other the side of heaven, and they don't meet together for purposes or anything like that. He's that's all true. That's one way ecclesia is used. 
It's used that way in the New Testament a handful of times. 99 times in your New Testament. Ecclesia refers to groups of those people, that larger body, that gather, meet in particular locations. And that's what's meant by the local church. It's the church, the called out people of God in a particular place. And that's why you have the letters to the churches are written to the church in Corinth, for example. Or the church in Philippi. This is, these are written by Paul to local churches. So the centrality now of the local church. Top of page 5. Evangelicals are known for their zeal in pursuing the spread of the gospel. The very word evangelical comes from euangelion, translated gospel. Therefore, an evangelical can be defined as one who believes and proclaims the gospel. But many mistakenly believe that's the end of our task, as we've seen. But the mere proclamation of the gospel message is not the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Obedience to Jesus' command requires baptizing and teaching. Implicit in his words is the indispensable role of the church in the mission. After all, into what are they baptized, if not the church? Now, notice I say implicit. But as we are going to see now, the church's implicit role becomes explicit as the apostles begin to carry out the Great Commission. And failure to see the necessity of the church in that mission has hosted and resulted in a host of well-intended yet misdirected enterprises. You have a quote there on that. I'll let you read that on your own. Now, let me try to quickly go through why we say that. Why we say that implicit in Jesus' final instructions in the Great Commission is the role of the local church, but that becomes explicit as you see how his first followers go to carry out that mission. Bottom of page 5, the rest of the story. Matthew 28 that we've already seen is the most well-known statement of the Great Commission, but it comes as a surprise to many that it's not the only one. Luke gives it as well. Luke chapter 24 This is Jesus speaking in the very same time frame that Matthew records him speaking. Namely, at the end of his earthly ministry, he's died on the cross, buried, raised. He's giving final instructions before he ascends to the Father. Jesus told them, Luke says, this is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my father has promised. Stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. Now, before you turn the page, before you turn that, just remember, I'm encouraging you to remember two words in that um, in that passage. Repentance and forgiveness of sins. Repentance and forgiveness of sins. And you're going to see those two words again in just a minute. But it's important to connect them. Jesus says, repentance and forgiveness of sins is going to be proclaimed in my name. That's going to be the mission. The content of the message of the mission is repentance and forgiveness of sins. Matthew said that this this mission is going to go to all nations and you're going to baptize them. So if you can remember those three words, Matthew says it's going to involve baptizing. Luke says the content of the preaching is going to be repentance and forgiveness of sins. Top of page 6 now. Luke 
who wrote the Gospel of Luke, gives us some additional details in addition to what Matthew said. The content of the preaching is going to be that, repentance and forgiveness of sins, and it's going to start in Jerusalem. And he told the apostles, Jesus did, go and wait until Jerusalem until you receive the power to start the mission. So did they receive the power and indeed begin the mission from Jerusalem? Luke wrote a second book. So he wrote the Gospel of Luke and he wrote the book of Acts. And the book of Acts is the sequel. The book of Acts is the continuing story now. Jesus gave these instructions. Jesus ascends back to the Father. And here's what Luke said in Acts. In my former book, which is the Gospel of Luke, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until he was taken up. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen, he said to them, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You will be my witnesses. Remember, beginning in Jerusalem, but it will go outward, Judea and Samaria, ends of the earth. All right. So Luke kind of regroups, brings us back to where we were at the end of the Gospel of Luke, and now he's going to record what happened after that. And you come to Acts chapter 2, and Luke is going to tell us what happened in the book of Acts. Uh, or in the, on the day of Pentecost in the book of Acts chapter 2. So they are waiting in Jerusalem like Jesus said. And in Acts chapter 2, they were all gathered together when the day of Pentecost had fully come, then, and many of you have read this, the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And they receive this uh, power to begin begin the mission. And Peter stands up because everybody's confused about what's happening. They heard these apostles speaking in their own, uh, in their own language, in languages that the apostles had never learned. So everybody's confused. And Peter stands up and says, let me explain. And from verses 14... Acts chapter 2 and verse 14, all the way down to verse 36, it's Peter preaching a message, explaining what's happening. Then, at the end of that message, here's what you have. Middle of page 6. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the other apostles, what shall we do? Peter said, repent. You guys have seen the word repent before. Where? Remember I asked you to remember three words? Luke chapter 24, repentance will be preached in his name. And what does Peter say? Repent. But he goes on, and be baptized. Where have you seen baptized? Matthew 28, Great Commission. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for, and notice, forgiveness of sins. Again, that's Luke chapter 24. So you've got baptism, you've got repentance, you've got forgiveness of sins, all the things that the great com- Jesus said the Great Commission would entail are all happening here. So guess what's starting here? The Great Commission in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. They're all there. But notice what else happened on the day of Pentecost. Not only did the Great Commission start, but at the very same time, on the very same day, guess what else started? The church. And I've got a long paragraph toward the bottom of page 6 that tells you how we know that the church started on the day of Pentecost. I don't have time, but you should read it because it's proof positive that the church began on the day of Pentecost. So the bottom of page 6, I say the significance of Acts 2.38 for an understanding of the centrality of the church can hardly be overstated. It provides the bridge from the risen Lord's mandate to the apostles' establishment and extension of the church in obedience to his command. Here's what I'm saying. Jesus said, this is going to be the, this is going to be the mission of the church until I come. 
I'll be with you until the end of the age. This is what you'll be doing. Go and wait in Jerusalem. Wait for the power. They receive the power. It starts in Jerusalem. The mission starts and the church both started exactly the same time. So now you've got a local church in Jerusalem, which is also the the universal church. They're one and the same at that point. Because these are all of the, this is all the people that are comprised of the church in the world at that point are in Jerusalem. But then it's going to move outward. And it does. And Pentecost was only the beginning. And so as you go forward in the book of Acts, here's what you'll find. You'll find that the mission, the Great Commission moves forward. It moves outward from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. At the end of the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 28, it ends with Paul in the capital of the Roman Empire, the city of Rome itself. So it has moved from Jerusalem outward. And the church is is part of that expansion the entire way. Now I have that for you on page number seven, about a third of the way down, where Luke in the book of Acts gives seven progress reports showing the progress of the mission starting in Jerusalem and moving outward. And in those seven progress reports, he mentions the proliferation of the churches as well. So you've got uh, Acts chapter 2 and verse 47, Acts chapter 6 and verse 7, 931, 1224, 165, 1920, and chapter 28 verses 30 and 31. Those seven progress reports. And it mentions the churches. Here's what's happening. The mission starts in Jerusalem and the church starts in Jerusalem. The mission goes out from Jerusalem and the church proliferates out from Jerusalem. The mission and the church go together. You don't have one without the other. You don't have the Great Commission without the church and you should never have a church that's not committed to the Great Commission. They go hand in hand. You further have Paul's resume and his ministry, which is completely centered on as given in the book of Acts, going to city after city, and guess what? As he carries out the Great Commission, guess what he establishes in those cities? What what does he leave behind? A church. He starts churches. And later he writes back letters to what? Those churches. So this is what we mean by the centrality of the local church. Now if you turn to page 8, middle of page 8, All of this has caused David Hesselgrave, in his book, Planting Churches Cross-Culturally, to say this. The primary mission of the church, capital C, that's everybody in the church, and therefore of the church is. So the primary mission of the body of Christ, and therefore of the churches that pro that comprise it, is to proclaim the gospel of Christ and gather believers into local visible churches where they can be built up in the faith and made effective in service, thereby planting new congregations throughout the world. He's right about that. So is the church a man-made institution? Um, No. God started it. God started it on the day of Pentecost. 
He started it for the purpose of carrying out his mission in his world. It is the means by which he does that. And the local church is the vehicle by which that's done. So, I return to the original question. What is the pillar and foundation of the truth? I've asked that question, I say on page 8, of numerous Christians over the years, and almost without exception, they're surprised to learn that the answer is the local church. A lot of times when asked that question, what's the pillar and foundation of the truth, people will say the Bible. The Bible is the truth. Your word is truth, Jesus said. Sometimes they'll say Jesus. Christ is the chief cornerstone. That's all true. But that actual phrase, the pillar and foundation of the truth, is used of none other than the local church. Here you have 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing to you, Timothy, this is Paul writing, these instructions so that if I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in, notice the names here, God's household, God's family, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the foundation of the truth. Now, how do I know he's talking about the local church? I'll tell you that, and then we'll pray and we'll be done. But I know he's talking about the local church because when he says that in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, and he says, I'm writing you these instructions so you'll know how people ought to behave, how they ought to conduct themselves, so you'll know how God's work is to be done. I'm writing you these instructions. What instructions? They go back to chapter 2 and verse 1. And if you were to open your Bible to 1 Timothy 2, 1, right above chapter 2, at the beginning of chapter 2, most Bibles have like a, a title there. It'll say something like rules for worship or principles for worship. And then it goes on to talk about when God's people gather. This is how worship is to happen. This is what's to take place. And then you come to chapter 3. And it talks about the qualifications for leaders in the church. Here are the qualifications, verses 1 through 7, of of being a pastor in the church. Verse 8 of chapter 3, here are the qualifications for being a deacon. And then you come to verse 11, you got the qualifications for a deacon's wife. Verse 12 comes back to the deacons. And then you come to verse 14, and he says what we just read. I'm writing you these instructions. What instructions? How worship is to happen, qualifications for leaders and their wives, and guess where all of that stuff takes place? Guess where all that conduct takes place? Guess where those pastors and those deacons and and wives serve? Not in the universal church, in the local church. And that local church is called the pillar of and foundation of the truth. Yikes. Seems to me the church is important. How about you? And I could go on, but I won't, about how you ought to structure your life around the mission of the church. Because it's the means by which God is accomplishing his work in this age. That is all true. So there are responsibilities then that are incumbent upon us as God's people and members of his church in order to carry that work out. Is the church a man-made institution? No. Everybody clear? Okay, let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word that explains to us why we're here. That tells us what the mission is and how it is 
that you prescribe that it be carried out. Thank you, Father, for the wisdom that ordained the church. Sometimes the church does not look wise to us because it is made up of sinful people who can frankly be difficult for one another. And so sometimes we may be tempted to say, I want to go it alone. I want to do my own thing. I love the Lord. I will just serve him in my own way, in my own capacity. I'll use my gifts on my own. Lord, you have told us that the church is your idea. It is your vehicle. It's beautiful to you. It is your bride. And it manifests itself in local assemblies like this one. So, Lord, help us to love what you love. Help us to cherish what you cherish and help us to give our lives to what you gave your life for. Go with us this week, Lord, as we serve you as your members of your church. Bring us back together next Lord's Day so that we can better learn how to do that. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.